There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Jack Raymond. Jack once attempted to assassinate the Emperor of Japan, only to enter into his service as the most loyal of the samurai. This is of course a lie, but if you would like me to lie about you and what you did in the past and give you a shout out on this show, head on over to Patreon. For now though, enjoy this episode of Bismarck Rise. Hello there, welcome to the latest episode of our Bismarck series for Hardcore When Diplomacy Fails. Thanks so much for joining me. I hope you're doing well, and I hope that you've been enjoying what we've been giving you so far. I, for one, am really getting into this Bismarck story. It's something I've wanted to do for so long, and now that I'm in the midst of it, I really don't want it to end. In the last episode, we brought the story up to 1859, where Bismarck had just finished his last posting in Frankfurt and had been promoted, technically, to a new position as ambassador to Russia, and he was on his way to St. Petersburg. We've seen Bismarck's character grow over the 1850s, to the point where he was considered experienced enough and talented enough and intelligent enough to represent Prussia in one of the most important European courts. This was a big deal, even if Bismarck didn't want to acknowledge it, because he had his heart set on some ministerial post, and also because he didn't think too much of those people who were going to have those ministerial posts, instead of him, so he thought. Bismarck certainly wasn't lacking for confidence, but he was lacking for a certain amount of optimism. He had enjoyed Frankfurt, and he didn't really want to leave it all behind. Understandably, just like any of us have a kind of growing experience in a particular thing that we do in our lives, it's kind of hard to move on and close that chapter, and imagine that anything else could measure up to it. Perhaps he had his nostalgic glasses on. Bismarck had had to work very hard in Frankfurt. It hadn't been an easy ride by any stretch, but it had been invaluable. It had helped him develop as a human being, as a man, as a career statesman, and pretty much all the lessons that he learned in Frankfurt would be useful later on in life. It's hard to say whether he saw the ambassadorship to Russia as the next step towards his eventual crowning as minister-president of Prussia. It's certainly unlikely that he saw this as the next step towards German unification. All that Bismarck knew was that he had liked his old job, but now he was forced to take this new one. In the decades since he had entered politics, though, you couldn't deny that he'd done pretty well for himself. 
there must have been something within Bismarck that impressed his contemporaries. Otherwise, this man with very little experience but very loud opinions never would have reached the heights that he did at the speed that he did. Maybe Bismarck, in the midst of this job change, would have remembered his mother's great ambitions for him. She had always wanted him to make something substantial of himself, and it was hard to deny that Bismarck hadn't done this. He was now Prussia's ambassador to Russia, and Prussia-Russian diplomacy would be in his hands for the foreseeable future. How would he get on? Let's find out. In Bismarck's mind, the appointment to St. Petersburg was not what he wanted, precisely because it would put him in the opposite direction to where he wanted to go. He believed he was needed at Berlin, or at the very least, he believed he should stay on at Frankfurt. But Wilhelm had ordered, and the subject had been forced to obey. At this moment in his career and his life, Bismarck was very interested and very concerned with preserving the influence that he had, or at least that he thought he had, in this new liberally-minded ministry, and in finding a way to maintain his reputation while serving so far from home. Bismarck would also be denied a straightforward exit. He arrived in Berlin on the 7th of March, and he'd have to wait till the 23rd of March before he could leave for St. Petersburg. He was still at the mercy of royal whims, no matter what job he took up, but the trip to St. Petersburg confirmed it was now time to enter into another period of his life. First, though, Bismarck displays his flair for description, describing an anecdote which often flies under the radar in the accounts of Bismarck's life. Just before his memoirs focus on the new posting in St. Petersburg, Bismarck took the time to record an interesting and humorous interaction that he had with a man known as Levenstein. Levenstein served as a secret banker and a man of great connections for the Austrians. Well connected with Viennese bankers, among them several Jewish banking families, Levenstein was known as someone who had several influential figures in his pockets. A wire puller, one of those people that Bismarck really couldn't stand, in other words. According to Bismarck's own account in late March 1859, before Otto von Bismarck left for St. Petersburg, Levenstein attempted to add him to his list of people who he had in his pocket. If Levenstein had managed to achieve this coup, Bismarck's support of Austria would be assured, and if Bismarck would accept Levenstein's money, then Vienna would obtain some leverage against its greatest critic, just before Bismarck left for the Russian capital. Predictably enough, Bismarck refused to bite. He didn't respond to the letter which Levenstein sent him, so to up the ante, Levenstein arrived in Bismarck's residence in Berlin to try and persuade him in person. As before, Levenstein's goal was to implicate Bismarck in a scheme where he would be paid a pension in return for his renouncement of his anti-Austrian policy, which had caused great uneasiness in Vienna, according to Levenstein. If this was supposed to deter Bismarck from going any further, then Levenstein didn't really know his mark. First and foremost, the idea that Bismarck was able to cause great uneasiness in Vienna would have filled Bismarck with a great amount of happiness. Again though, confronting Bismarck in person here, Levenstein was going to try his hardest, and in a scene which Bismarck describes vividly, he gave it his best. After Levenstein had justified his visit by showing an autograph letter of introduction from Count Buell, he proposed that I should take part in a financial transaction which would bring me 20,000 talers a year with certainty. To my reply that I had no capital to invest, 
came the answer that payments on account were not necessary in the transaction, but that what I put into the concern would consist in becoming the advocate of Austria together with Prussian policy in the court of Russia, because the transaction in question could only succeed provided the relations between Russia and Austria were favourable. This was nothing less than an Austrian bribe, courtesy of Count Buell, the Austrian foreign minister, who rather naively hoped to turn Bismarck into an Austrian patsy. Bismarck doesn't address whether he gave the offer any consideration. Instead, he claims that his mind moved immediately to the task of obtaining some evidence of Levenstein's dirty tricks. It was of importance to me to get into my hands some kind of evidence in writing respecting this offer, in order to prove to the regent, Wilhelm, how well-grounded was my distrust of Count Buell's policy. I therefore represented to Mr. Levenstein that in such a risky transaction, I must have a stronger security than his verbal statement, on the strength of the few lines from Count Buell's hand which he had retained. He would not consent to get me a written promise, but raised his offer to 30,000 thalers a year. When I had made sure that I could not obtain any evidence in writing, I entreated Levenstein to leave me and prepared to go out. He followed me to the staircase with varying phrases on the theme. Be careful, Herr Bismarck. It is not pleasant to have the imperial government of Austria for an enemy. It was not until I called his attention to the steepness of the staircase and to my physical superiority that Levenstein bolted down the stairs and left me in peace. It was quite a scene, the burly Bismarck scaring the Austrian agent down the stairs while he stood tall, confirmed in his anti-Austrian prejudices and now more determined than ever to build his anti-Austrian connections while face to face with the Russians. It seems that Bismarck was important enough for Vienna to consider such a brazen and underhanded approach. Maybe the Austrian government were getting desperate now that their sworn enemy was approaching the capital of their estranged and insulted ally, who they had alienated by their policy during the Crimean War, as we've seen. The new Tsar Alexander II, lest we forget, had still not forgiven Austria for turning against Russia during the latter's time of need in the Crimean War. Alexander claimed that, rather than return the favour Russia did for Austria in 1848, when it had saved Vienna from its Hungarian crisis, the Austrian Emperor Franz Josef and his foolish foreign minister Buell had broken the heart of his father, Tsar Nicholas. Perhaps it was no accident that Bismarck had been appointed to St. Petersburg after all. Bismarck would have time to reflect on the significance of his new appointment because it would take nearly a month to travel from Berlin to St. Petersburg as heavy snows through March 1859 ruined the already rudimentary roads which led to the Russian capital. If we're not all that familiar with the Russian Empire at this point in its history, it can be kind of hard to imagine what it would have looked like, but suffice to say, this was the era before railways took over. Those of us familiar with our later history of what would come after Bismarck's tenure in office would know that it was only after the French essentially loaned the Russians a load of money that Russia was able to modernise itself and build a whole load of railways all across its empire. But at this point, in the late 1850s, there were no such railways to be found, and the horse and cart was still the main mode of transport for Russian citizens, foreign visitors, and anyone else. 
For those unable to afford a horse and cart, which was most Russians, by the way, walking was the best way around. There were many problems with travelling by horse and cart. You had to worry about bandits, you had to make sure you were well stocked up with supplies, and if your cart was too heavy as a result of this, then your journey could be pretty slow. But another problem was the weather. And as we said in March 1859, the snows were immense. The impact that the snow had on the Russian countryside could make the whole place seem picturesque at the best of times, but at the worst of times when you're in a rush to go somewhere, snow was the enemy of brisk travel. When you had snow, you had frozen ground. When you had melting snow, you had a load of mud. And mud was the nemesis of the horse and cart. Especially if this mud came to exist on roads which had never been particularly good to begin with. Bismarck was no exception to this rule. He had to get out and push the cart several times, as he records in his memoirs. And they had to make several stop-offs when the horses from pulling this trudging cart couldn't go any further because they were so exhausted. It took far longer than it should have, but Bismarck arrived in Konigsberg after a journey which few would envy. He still had to travel from this city in East Prussia to the Russian capital, and even though this journey would only take an hour by plane today, Bismarck trudged along the desolate, snowy wastes for a full week. By the middle of April 1859, Bismarck had finally safely arrived in his post, and he was ready to sink his teeth into a new mission, that of cozying up to the Russians at the expense of the Austrians. In 1859, the Holy Alliance of Austria, Prussia and Russia was clearly dead, and resentment towards Austria was high in Russian minds. Bismarck imagined he would be able to wrest some kind of commitment from the Tsar. This was the best-case scenario. Much like the Crimean War had arrived to invigorate and supercharge Bismarck's position, though many miles away, circumstances outside of Bismarck's control were to work in his favour once again. On the 29th of January 1859, the same day Bismarck had been confirmed as ambassador to Russia, Napoleon III's France concluded a secret defensive alliance with Piedmont, that Italian kingdom which had grand ambitions for the unification of the Italian peninsula, under its dynasty. This alliance with France meant that if Piedmont was attacked, France would have to rush to its aid, and both would then work to expel Austria from Italy and establish a kingdom of North Italy under Piedmont's control. This was a critical step towards unifying Italy under a single national entity, and it spoke to Napoleon III's vision and sense of purpose. The story is given an added wrinkle by the fact that Napoleon III had been challenged by, of all things, the Italian assassin, Felice Orsini, who had failed to kill him. While Orsini was on trial for his life, he famously urged Napoleon to take up the cause of Italian nationhood once he had the chance, and to fulfil the mission which his uncle, Napoleon Bonaparte, had supposedly undertaken at the beginning of the century. As was usually the case, Napoleon III proved unable to resist the campaign of nostalgia which was presented to him, but he also saw the benefits in removing Austria from Italy and gaining a new ally for France in the region as a consequence. We will recall that in conversations that Napoleon had had with Bismarck, he had expressed a desire for war in Italy, and he claimed that if war occurred, he'd like to remove Austria from the region. Now, apparently, Napoleon III would have the chance. All he had to do was persuade the Austrians to make war on Piedmont, which would activate the secret alliance that he had with them. That the Austrians would march 
hook, line and sinker into this trap took even Napoleon III's most optimistic predictions by surprise. When Piedmont refused to disarm and ignored an Austrian ultimatum, Emperor Franz Josef himself called for war against this upstart Italian kingdom, calling it a commandment of honour and duty. That it may well have been for the Emperor, but this war was to be anything but successful for Vienna. On the 29th of April 1859, the war was made official, which triggered the French alliance. Suddenly, Austria was now at war with a Franco-Italian coalition, and Napoleon III was hungry for glory and triumph to solidify his regime. Bismarck must have banged his fist on the table when he learned of this development, and he learned of it second-hand. Had he remained in Frankfurt, he would have been at the centre of these intrigues, and he would have been in a key place to exploit them. Far away in St. Petersburg, he was as far away as one could have been from a key position in this affair, and his inability to influence such an important crisis made him deeply anxious. The phrase sick with worry begins to appear an awful lot at this point in Bismarck's life, and it's a phrase which will accompany him for the duration of his life. He had waited years for Austria to slip up and to overstep the boundaries of its position. He had also warned his colleagues for years in Berlin that Napoleon had no interest in Germany proper, but preferred to contest the European question with Austria and to do this in Italy. Many times, don't forget, Bismarck had met with Napoleon, and during the course of those meetings, Bismarck had internalised the impression of the French Emperor that if there was going to be a war, it would be in Italy, and it would be over the question of whether France or Austria would rule over that peninsula. In the event of a conflict like that, it was imperative that Prussia should remain neutral in Bismarck's mind, and that she should mobilise her army to take advantage of the situation. This was the policy Bismarck would have advocated had he been in Frankfurt, but a liberally-minded cabinet was now in Berlin. And with Bismarck's stirring presence now absent from those smaller German courts, not to mention with the Prussian government not receiving the steady stream of letters about all the bad things Austria was doing from Bismarck, it couldn't be predicted how matters would transpire. Bismarck could even picture the nightmare scenario where Austria rallied all of Germany to its side, including Prussia, and France was defeated by a German coalition which only reinforced Vienna's position. Fortunately for Bismarck's career, and also his nerves, this didn't happen. Instead, owing to Franz Josef's determination and Napoleon's trap, Austria marched down a road which was to end ultimately in its defeat in 1918. This was the beginning of the end of the Austrian Empire. Cracks had already begun to show in the glorious edifice of the Habsburg monarchy, but the long decline of Vienna, if it began in 1848 and was arrested by the hostile Schwarzenberg, was renewed with a vengeance here. After the war between Austria and France, neither Austria, nor France, nor Bismarck would ever be the same again. The consequences of any and every action are hidden from Count Buell. He sees what is right in front of him, of what is coming, he sees nothing. This was the unfavourable verdict which an aged Metternich gave on Count Buell, the Austrian minister-president and foreign minister, and it was by no means the most unfavourable. He is like a locomotive, proclaimed the Bavarian ambassador to Prussia which does not know where it is going, and when asked, answers only with steam and whistling. Only Count Buell, indeed, could have known where Austria was going when it declared war on Piedmont, 
in late April 1859. Unbeknownst to this privileged but unremarkable Habsburg servant, where he was going was off the edge of a cliff with Austrian prestige dragged behind. By the end of summer 1859, Austria's war with France over the fate of Italy was concluded in France's favour. The conflict had provided a bloody interlude to the otherwise pacific relations between Vienna and Paris between 1815 to 1914. It was also, and this is often forgotten in the kind of teleological narrative which is often provided here, a very close-run thing. The battles of Magenta and Solferino went in favour of the French and the Piedmontese, but only just. And while Lombardy was wrested away from Austria, Venice was not. Napoleon III couldn't accomplish all that he wanted to, and his Italian allies were left bereft and disgusted. The French emperor had betrayed them, and the national dream of Italy would have to wait a decade longer before it could be realised. A major reason for the brief nature of this war was that the French began to fear intervention, not from Russia, but from Prussia and the German Confederation. For Prussia to have intervened in support of Austria would have been as opposite to Bismarck's ideal as you could possibly get. But this just goes to show the extent to which Bismarck's previous advice had been ignored. Indeed, Bismarck's Frankfurt replacement, von Usedom, had been chosen largely because of his pro-Austrian sympathies, not to mention the fact that he had a good relationship with Augusta, Wilhelm's wife, Augusta of course being no friend of Bismarck. The turn against Bismarck, from his advice to his old way of doing things in Frankfurt, seemed complete. Rather than take this ideal opportunity to demand more of Vienna, or even to pressure her with mobilisation in Silesia or some other sensitive region, Wilhelm showed his favour not towards any ideas of Prussian aggrandizement, but towards solidarity of the German ideal. He mobilised six army corps, and he prepared to march to the west. But two problems blocked this nightmare of Bismarck's from coming to pass. The first of these problems was that the Austrians refused to allow the Prussians to serve as the commanding force of any German army that might be created. The reason for this refusal on Austria's part was because they believed if they granted Prussia the right to command, then Prussia would believe itself to be on the same level as Austria. An additional problem which stuck in the craw of the Prussians was the refusal of the Austrian Emperor to acknowledge Prussia's supremacy north of the River Main. If you wanted to picture a mind map in your head of Germany, then the River Main was like a geographic cutoff point. It divided the north and south of German lands, but Austria tenaciously refused to acknowledge that north of the River Main, it was Prussia who was in control rather than Vienna. So Bismarck was fortunate that these roadblocks were in the way, but just because these roadblocks were there, that didn't mean that Austria and Prussia on the other side of things were going to bash into each other. Frustrated and irritated though he was, Wilhelm was not about to confront the Austrians on a German stage because of these insults. Neither Wilhelm nor his minister Karl Anton ever made any moves towards confronting Austria or taking advantage of her difficulties. Napoleon may have lamented that if only his old friend and occasional visitor, Bismarck, had been in power in Prussia, things could well have been different, and France might have been able to push even further at the peace table. As matters stood in summer 1859, though, many Prussian officers were now convinced 
that Napoleon's next move was to emulate his father and send an army over the Rhine to resurrect the old influence of Napoleon I. Bismarck knew this was all baloney, though. As he saw it, Napoleon III was nowhere near capable of achieving a coup like this, but the image and revolutionary reputation of France, not to mention the reputation of Napoleon III's dynasty, meant that, as Bismarck had earlier noted, strikes of genius and impossible policies were attributed to the French emperor as though he remained some sort of demigod or visionary of foreign affairs. The reality was a lot less exciting and enchanting, and much more cynical. Napoleon III needed French approval to stay in power, or else he could be the victim of another revolution, this one toppling him from power. As a result, Napoleon sought out some ideal scenarios which would bring glory to France at minimal cost to France. The Crimean War had been his first stab in this direction, and it brought debatable dividends. The war against Austria was closer to the bone because it had echoes of his uncle's Italian policy and it was always nice to stick it to Vienna in return for 1815. But this victory, which was solidified at the Treaty of Villafranca in July 1859, represented the high point of Napoleon's regime. For the next decade, he would search without result for another such triumph and after taking an utterly bizarre detour into Mexico of all places, which deserves a podcast all by itself, Napoleon thought that he had found this chance to get a triumph easily by taking on the upstart kingdom of Prussia. As it happened, his decision to make war on Prussia in the summer of 1870 was the mirror image of what Napoleon had done himself to the Austrians in the spring of 1859. In both of those cases, a trap had been laid for the attacker, which played into the hands of the defender. In 1859, with Napoleon III's trap, Piedmont's war with Austria had brought France unexpectedly to the conflict. In 1870, with Bismarck's trap, all of Germany would be drawn in against France, with dramatic, disastrous consequences for the unfulfilling French emperor. For as much as Bismarck would have claimed to respect the man, his major reason for holding Napoleon III in esteem was because he knew deep down that he was above this French emperor in terms of intellect and craftiness, and that one day, a day distant from now for sure, but one day, this could come in useful for him. One thing's for sure, Bismarck's achievements were only made possible through the blunders of his contemporaries, contemporaries like Napoleon III. And Napoleon III likely wouldn't have blundered so enthusiastically into war in 1870 if he had had a greater sample of what Germany had to offer him in terms of resistance in 1859. As matters stood in 1859 though, Napoleon got out of the war just before it became too expensive and tough. He chose a foreign policy option which made sense at the time, and which brought to a sudden end the crisis of war, almost as suddenly as the crisis had arrived. Napoleon III, Queen Victoria, Metternich, a young emperor, Franz Josef, and then Wilhelm, the man who would be the first Kaiser of Germany, Bismarck certainly shared the world with some fascinating people, and he was soon to be acquainted with another. Prince Alexander Gorchakov was the closest thing you could find in Russia to Bismarck's counterpart. He preceded his record by about a decade. Gorchakov had risen to prominence during the Crimean War, acquiring the position as Russian foreign minister from 1856, where he would remain for an incredible 26 years, overseeing all of Russia's foreign adventures and establishing a reputation which would be surpassed only by Bismarck. 
Gorchakov, like Bismarck, would maintain a stranglehold over power. But unlike Bismarck, who is often lamented as having left too early, Gorchakov is accused of having stayed in place too long. That Gorchakov died less than a year after leaving office at the age of 84 should give some indication as to why. By his late 70s, Gorchakov had become senile and his knack for solving or exploiting crises had mostly vanished, though the vanity and contempt that he seemed to have for his underlings did not vanish. Few people would have mourned Gorchakov's exit in 1882, coming as it did shortly after a more significant departure, the assassination of Tsar Alexander II in March 1881. Tsar Alexander II is our Tsar for pretty much all of what goes on in Russia at this point, and it is kind of sad to know that he has such a sticky end, especially when he tried so hard to bring liberal reforms to Russia and generally make Russia a better place to live in for its subjects, be they sickeningly rich Russian nobles or the poorest of the poor, the peasants. Alexander II's successor was his son Alexander III, and Alexander III had been utterly appalled, not just by the fact that his father had been brutally murdered, but also by the fact that he had been brutally murdered by the very people he had been trying to help. As far as Alexander III was concerned, from 1882 onwards, Russia was to revert to its roots. There would be no liberal Russia, as many liberals at the time in Europe had dreamed. But this was the 1880s. Bismarck was now living in 1859, so none of this could be known at the time. All that Bismarck did know was that he seemed to get on fairly well with Mr. Gorchakov. He had met him before during the Crimean War peace negotiations, but then only briefly. Since he had assumed power, Gorchakov's vanity had massively increased, but he had yet to achieve any kind of coup which would solidify his position in the Tsar's eyes. The renunciation of the Black Sea Treaties, which had been arrived at in 1856, and which were designed to keep the Black Sea free from Russian military shipping, would be Gorchakov's big coup, but he wouldn't achieve this until 1870, while the Franco-Prussian War was raging on. This is a roundabout way of saying that, although neither man knew it yet, both would have a profound impact upon the other. For Bismarck, Gorchakov's greatest utility for him was that he seemed to be willing to get down to business, and Bismarck was very willing indeed to talk business. On the 28th of April 1859, a day which, unbeknownst to Bismarck, was the day before the French and Austrians were going to war, Bismarck attended a funeral of a distinguished Russian prince, a man important enough to warrant a full state affair, with the Tsar and company attending. Amidst the crowd was Gorchakov, also there to pay his respects, but before long, Gorchakov found Bismarck, and the two men took the occasion to talk. In the black festooned church, wrote Bismarck, after it emptied, I sat with Gorchakov on the black velvet pew with a covering of skulls, and we politicked, that is, worked, not chatted. The preacher had cited the passing of all things in the psalm, and we planned and plotted as if one would never die. From conversations with men like Gorchakov, who Bismarck surely imagined would be his equal one day, Bismarck began to glean further impressions of the Russian position, which was, he said, thoroughly affected by the resentment still felt towards Austria. The sense that not only Austria, but also the Emperor Franz Josef, had inflicted a deeply personal wound upon the late Tsar Nicholas, 
and that this wound had killed the Tsar, found currency as well in St. Petersburg. Bismarck recorded, One cannot imagine how low the Austrians are here. Not even a scabby dog would accept meat from them. The hatred is beyond measure and exceeds all my expectations. Only since I have arrived have I believed in war. The entire Russian foreign policy has no other aim but to find a way to get even with Austria. Even the calm and gentle emperor, Alexander II, spits fire and rage when he talks about it, and the empress, a princess of Darmstadt, and the dowager empress, the late Nicholas's wife, are moving when they talk about the broken heart of the late Tsar, who loved Franz Josef like a son. Bismarck also provided further testament to the hatred Russians of all ranks felt, not merely in the royal family. While he was on tour of Moscow in June 1859, Prince Dolgoruki, the governor of Moscow, showed him around the different sites, including a library, and it was there that Bismarck noticed an officer, emblazoned with several medals, including a German iron cross. Bismarck was curious as to how this Russian officer had come to acquire a German medal. As we can gain from this extract, Bismarck had no issue with simply walking up to strangers and asking them what the story was, but it should also be added that even by this early stage in his Russian adventure, Bismarck had acquired a very good grasp of the Russian language, which certainly stood him in good stead. After talking with this officer, Bismarck learned that he had gotten the Iron Cross from the Battle of Kulm, which occurred in 1813. Plainly, this officer was a relic from the Napoleonic Wars. Bismarck says that he congratulated the old soldier on being so hearty after 46 years, and the soldier's reply was that, did the emperor but permit it, he would be glad enough to take part in the present war. By present war, this old officer meant the war then ongoing in Italy between France and Austria. Bismarck was taken aback by this proclamation from a random old Russian officer, very far removed from any higher Russian political circles, so he talked with the man further, while his guide, the governor of Moscow, Prince Dolgoruki, likely stood there awkwardly. Bismarck asked the soldier which side he would take in the present war. Always against Austria, was the soldier's reply. Bismarck then pointed out that at the 1813 Battle of Kulm, Austria, Prussia and Russia had all fought on the same side against the common French enemy. Whereupon, Bismarck records, the soldier continued in his stiff military attitude and with the loud and penetrating voice with which the Russian soldier always addresses his officer, he replied, An honest enemy is better than a false friend. This straightforward answer delighted Prince Dolgoruki so much that in a moment the general and subordinate officer were in each other's arms and exchanging cordial kisses on both cheeks. Such at the time was the Russian feeling towards Austria among generals and subordinate officers. The feelings were so strong that they could apparently break down the barriers of social and military rank and etiquette, things which were very important indeed in Russia. Surely it was only a matter of time before the vengeful Tsar mobilised and moved to attack the Austrians? At the very least, the Tsar might encourage the Hungarians to rise in revolt once again, and this time he would refrain from putting their rebellion down. Let's see how the Austrians like that. Of course, in Vienna it was certainly common knowledge that no help would be coming from the Tsar. 
This fact and the actual Hungarian revolt, which did erupt once again in 1859, but on a smaller scale to what had happened a decade before, moved Franz Josef to make peace within only a few months. With the first manoeuvres taking place in May 1859, by the end of July the peace had been formalised, and this neat little war was waged almost too quickly for Bismarck to properly consider how to take advantage of it. But he certainly made an attempt at trying. He records again in his memoirs how he had tried to exploit Austria's difficulties by advising on a certain kind of policy, one which emphasised the Prussian and German interests above all. War with Austria, at least at this point, didn't seem to Bismarck like the best option, particularly if Prussia could get what she wanted without having to fight a war. Unfortunately for Bismarck, he had to admit that I had not realised that the extraordinary exertions which I had imposed upon myself and my dispatches with this end, taking advantage of the war, must be completely fruitless, because my direct reports and my communications made in autograph letters reached the Regent Wilhelm either not at all, or else accompanied by comments which prevented them from making any impression. We might think that Bismarck was once again blaming his lack of influence on the sinister forces which were gathering against him in Berlin, but he was actually correct in this. He wasn't just being paranoid. Ever since the change of regime in Berlin and the shunting off of Bismarck to faraway St. Petersburg, it had become much easier for the court in Berlin to ignore Bismarck's advice. Bismarck's old method of reaching King Wilhelm with his views and advice was to send letters to Leopold von Gerlach, who had been the king's general adjutant. But this rank belied the fact that Gerlach and Frederick William were good friends, and they met every morning for coffee and cake. It sounds like a pretty good time, actually, to have coffee and cake and discuss the latest mad dispatch from a rising Bismarck. It's easy to imagine that the detailed, anxious accounts which Bismarck had sent from Frankfurt to the King Frederick William and Gerlach at the time in the 1850s would have given both men an awful lot of entertainment and enjoyment, probably at Bismarck's expense. However seriously or not seriously King Frederick William had taken Bismarck though, he had at least always had a way into the royal circle. He had a window in, even if his advice wasn't followed. It was always known, and sometimes it would be presented in a sympathetic light. We have seen Gerlach before. In fact, we examined the correspondence which he had with Bismarck, those letters in the spring of 1857. We can see from those letters that he didn't agree with Bismarck on every detail, but he did seem to genuinely care for his student, and he had supported him where it had mattered. Now in 1859, the support system was gone. Frederick William and Gerlach no longer met. Furthermore, Gerlach's other friend, the minister-president Edwin von Manteuffel, was no longer in place in that position to suggest that Bismarck should have a seat in the cabinet. So, when Bismarck sent out one of his longest dispatches yet to the new Prussian foreign minister, Alexander von Schleinitz, it was as likely to be binned as it was to be ignored. But the contents are worth recording in small detail, if only for the foreshadowing which again stalked Bismarck's writings. The Junker declared, this tendency of German middle state policy will emerge with the steadiness of a magnetic needle after any temporary swings, because it is no arbitrary product of individual circumstances or persons, but a natural and necessary result of the federal relationships of the small states. 
We have no means to cope with this in a lasting satisfactory way, given the federal treaties. I see in our relationship to the German Confederation an infirmity of Prussia, which we shall, sooner or later, have to heal with iron and fire. Iron and fire. This speech was an anticipation of Bismarck's other use of a very similar phrase, which would become more infamous, blood and iron, during his first speech as minister-president in September 1862. But here it had a similar meaning. If Prussia could not get its way through cooperation, and if she was so hamstrung by pieces of paper, then was it not better to work for an alternative solution, one which would be bolstered by force? As we noted, of course, letters like these didn't endear Bismarck to the regent's ministry, and as we'll see in a bit, they actually made his superiors question his fitness for office, to an extent that they hadn't done since Bismarck's early days in Frankfurt. This is all to say that the changing of the guard, as the ailing king made way for his brother, had a profound impact upon Bismarck's prospects. This change in his fortunes depressed and angered Bismarck and it was made all the worse by the fact that he was now so far away and so far removed from German politics. Now that his finger was no longer on Frankfurt's pulse, Bismarck couldn't even tell what the Prussian court had decided to do. As it happened, and as we've seen, Wilhelm and his foreign minister Schleinitz determined to mobilise six army corps in support of Austria. A mistake, Bismarck declared, choking with the rage that comes from a man who feels utterly helpless but the mobilisation was too ineffectual and it was also too late to make the Austrians feel much love or much gratitude. Although they had bungled Prussian policy in the summer of 1859, Wilhelm believed that Bismarck demonstrated, with every shrill dispatch, his unfitness for office. If Bismarck couldn't accept the reality of the situation, and if he continued to advocate impossible choices, then maybe... St. Petersburg was too good a post for him. Rather than remove him, Wilhelm determined to send someone to supervise him and ensure that his other news was accurate. The only result of my labours, Bismarck lamented, besides a complication of the disease which medical poisoning had induced in me, was that suspicion was cast on the accuracy of my reports as to the inclinations of the Russian emperor, in consequence of which Count Munster, former military plenipotentiary at St. Petersburg, was sent to the Russian capital to keep control over me. Bismarck assures the reader that this inspector, Count Munster, was in fact his friend, who soon verified the authenticity of Bismarck's reports back home. But what a change we see here in Bismarck's stock. He had gone from being considered for a ministerial post at one high point, to now being so mistrusted that he had to be effectively supervised. It's hardly surprising that in these circumstances, being mostly unable to change them, the powerless Bismarck slipped into what we can describe as a depression, which was quickly followed by a debilitating illness that saw him whisked back in a hurry to the safety of Berlin's doctors. The major issue was his leg. You might remember that he injured this leg in a hunting accident a few years before, and he had failed to take the proper precautions or let his leg to heal. When this leg flared up again as a serious problem, the treatment which Bismarck got only made his leg worse. One German quack doctor in particular actually burned a hole in the flesh behind Bismarck's knee, with the result that Bismarck developed a burning fever and an infection, and it seemed at the very least that he would lose his leg, and he would be lucky to hold on to his life. 
In July 1859, to be closer to better treatment, Bismarck determined to make the long, arduous journey home over bumpy roads and desolate wastes from St. Petersburg to Berlin. Every bump along the road, we can imagine, served to remind Bismarck of his agony and how far his political star had fallen. Unbeknownst to Bismarck, he would spend nearly a year in the Prussian capital, and he wouldn't return to St. Petersburg until June 1860. By then, his prospects would be different, if not necessarily better. While in this accidental Berlin holiday, Bismarck was destined to endure periods of immense stress and frustration once again. But this time, there was a difference, because this time it really seemed not only that our man might make it to a ministerial post, like foreign minister, to replace the indecisive Alexander von Schleinitz, but also that Bismarck might come to rule over this Prussian government as its minister-president. From the depths of his despair, indeed, Bismarck would bounce back. By the time he returned to Russia in summer 1860, he'd been encouraged to dream bigger, much bigger. Before Bismarck could experience the career renaissance that he really was desperate for, he would first have to get better. He was no use to anyone in his current state of health. He had had to return home from St. Petersburg because he had been so ill. And being so ill would hardly recommend him for minister-president, should the wonderful thing happen where he got recommended for that post. Thankfully for Bismarck, he was in good hands in Berlin. Berlin's doctors soon had him right again although the leg would give him trouble in the future. I'm really fond of Edward Crankshaw's passage here when he describes Bismarck getting well. Crankshaw writes that The leg was saved to heave its owner across the roughest country on many more shooting days. The image of this leg being forced against its will almost to heave Bismarck all across the country and all across Europe as well is an effective image, I think. It creates this idea that even Bismarck's own body would have to obey his every whim, and his legs would be forced to haul him wherever he decided to go. And where he decided to go was the king's palace. Several times Bismarck visited the royal couple, who were still caretaking until Frederick William either died or got better. The regent and his wife were still no great fans of Bismarck, the Austro-French War was pretty much wound down at this stage, and Bismarck tried to express his views, perhaps hoping that something might come of the situation, but these views fell on deaf ears. In late September 1859, he would write to his beloved sister Malvina, saying, Now that I have talked myself hoarse to artisans and statesmen, I have almost gone mad from annoyance, hunger, and too much business. The left leg is still weak, swells up when I walk on it. The nerves have yet to recover from the iodine poisoning. I sleep badly, flat and embittered, and I don't know why. It is at this point that Jonathan Steinberg asserts that the reason why Bismarck felt so depressed, so flat and embittered, was because the regent had once again snubbed him. Still, neither Wilhelm nor his circle would listen to Bismarck's advice, which he dutifully continued to forward towards them, whether they wanted it or not. Still, Wilhelm refused to treat Bismarck with the kindness and affection which Bismarck, at least, felt he deserved. On top of all of this, his leg was still at him, and it would be for the remainder of the year until he actually listened to the doctors and took some proper rest. Even while consulting with doctors in Berlin, Bismarck couldn't help himself. 
He met old political contacts and he discussed politics relentlessly, so that his complaint about having too much business and being annoyed and being hungry were complaints largely of his own making. To be fair to Bismarck at the same time, it was difficult to remain idle when so much was happening that he so badly wanted to be part of. In mid-October, in his capacity as ambassador to Russia, Bismarck was asked by Wilhelm to accompany him to a meeting with the Tsar, who was then in his Polish estates and wanted to engage in some serious hunting with his Prussian counterpart as they were based in Warsaw. Bismarck was greatly encouraged by this invite. He wrote to his wife on the 19th of October 1859 how splendid the whole thing was. The whole day, in grandeur with Tsar Alexander II, I can only tell you in plain words that I am very well. Breakfast with the Emperor, then audience, exactly as gracious as in Petersburg. Visits, dinners with His Majesty, evening theatre, really good ballet, and the boxes full of pretty women. Now I have just slept splendidly. Tea stands on the table, and as soon as I have drunk it I shall go out. The aforesaid tea consisted of not only tea, but coffee, six eggs, three sorts of meat, baked goods, and a bottle of Bordeaux. Very comfortable. Bismarck, even though we marvel at his achievements and his ability, was at his core a simple man with simple needs. Like many 19th century contemporaries, he thrived on praise and attention from his sovereign, and he moped and sulked when he didn't get it. Unlike most of his 19th century contemporaries, and this is just me making a judgement call here, but Bismarck seems to have been what we would consider a stress eater. Now we should bear in mind the reports given by visitors to the Bismarck estate, where Johanna lovingly tended to his never-ending appetite by insisting on him taking second helpings for pretty much everything. We should also bear in mind as well the simple fact of the matter that Bismarck was a large man. He was six foot four, and he was quite bulky as well, although people would rarely describe him as fat, preferring the description stout or bulky or stocky. Either way, it would require a lot of food to keep Bismarck's engine going, and we imagine that working as hard as Bismarck did, and he wasn't one to exaggerate how hard he worked at least, would require a lot of brain food as well. I could also go out on a limb here and say that Bismarck was something of a foodie, and that food cheered him up. When he couldn't eat, he missed out on what seems to have been a real pleasure to him. So when he was granted royal attention, and provided with large breakfasts, as happened during this hunting trip, Bismarck's two important boxes were ticked, and he got as close as he would ever be to his happy place. Over the 23rd and 24th of October, the two leaders hosted a summit in Breslau, and it was here that Bismarck met with a friend from his youth, a renowned Prussian officer by the name of Albrecht von Roon. Though Bismarck could not have known it, this old friend would prove utterly essential for his advancement. In fact, I would go as far as saying that without Roon, there would be no Bismarck. And this is because, deep down within the brain of Albrecht von Roon, there had begun to develop a theory. A theory which was based on the premise that Prussia's army was no longer up to scratch and was in desperate need of reform. These Roon reforms, when they eventually were realised, would increase the army and active reserves of the Prussian force by 50% and would increase the training period for soldiers from two to three years. According to Roon's understanding, it took a full three years for a citizen of Prussia to become a soldier and this doctrine was here established, which would be debated all the way up to 1914. 
Rune's reforms were important for another reason. They cost an absolute bomb. Of course they did. To increase the amount of reserves and to increase the length of time one can spend training in the army would cost a lot of money. The only way for a constitutional absolutist state like Prussia to acquire these funds was through Parliament. But the Landtag refused to grant the necessary monies. They disagreed over the amount that the whole thing cost and they also disliked the fact that soldiers would now be trained for three years. The bottom line was that the Liberals believed the larger army would be used against them and the fear that the regent Wilhelm would harness this army to increase his power. He was, after all, a soldier before he'd become king. There was also the sheer fact of the cost, which will come up later on in our story, and such a large amount of money would divert money away from other theatres, like industry, infrastructure, agriculture and any social improvements. By October 1859, Rune was perfecting and honing his arguments, and he'd been appointed to a committee which would report to the Minister of War on how to make the reforms happen. It seemed as though Rune, with his reforms in hand, would soon be given a platform on which to speak, and from this he could influence Prussia and get the army reforms that he wanted. But appearances could be deceptive. The problem with Rune's post by October 1859 was that, although he was the most enthusiastic proponent of the reforms, he was also the most junior officer on the committee that was tasked with judging whether the reforms were possible. Because of this junior status, he found it nigh on impossible to be heard by his peers. And when it came to other individuals and their opinions on these reforms, Rune records that even Bismarck himself had very serious doubts about the affair. Rune called it the affair, but he was under no doubts himself that the army needed reforming. It had failed miserably in the most recent test, when Wilhelm had tried to mobilise six army corps only for the whole thing to end in a kind of anticlimactic mess. Bismarck might have been thankful that the mobilisation had failed because this meant Austria would have nothing to leverage against France at the peace table, but for Rune and his peers, the whole thing was deeply embarrassing. On the basis of this failure, support for reform increased, but Rune knew that it was only when the most senior officials believed in the cause that these reforms would be realised. This belief proved correct, and after several recommendations from some of the more senior Prussian commanders, Wilhelm, an officer in his own right, became quite consumed by the project. To demonstrate just how serious he was about reforming the army, Wilhelm dismissed the unpopular minister for war, and he appointed Albrecht von Roon in his stead. The date was the 5th of December 1859. And it was a date which, although Bismarck didn't realise it, was directly tied into his own fortunes. In Rune's own right, it was a stunning rise for such an innovative and visionary individual. It did suggest that great change was afoot in Wilhelm's ministry, and that Wilhelm was an individual who spotted talent and promoted it. Could Bismarck also be given the call to join up, and perhaps replace the do-nothing foreign minister, Alexander von Schleinitz? This great a change, unfortunately for Bismarck, was still a step too far. Albrecht von Roon was a talented, capable and innovative officer, but his most important quality was the fact that he had a friendship with Otto von Bismarck. It was because of this friendship that Bismarck now had an ally inside the government again, just like he had used to have with Gerlach and the king. 
and what was more, this ally was also entitled to meet with the king at any moment. It was an officer's... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Right in Prussia to ask for an audience with the king and be granted it. Just like Leopold von Gerdach, his old mentor, had done when he had had coffee and cakes with the king in the morning, now, although Rune wouldn't be having coffee and cake with Wilhelm every morning, he could request an audience, and as Minister for War, he was now one of the most senior and most important members of the Prussian government. This development was one which Bismarck doesn't seem to have been all that aware of, but it proved to be the most important event of 1859. Within months of his appointment, Rune was making use of that friend of his, and was telling all who would listen, but particularly the regent Wilhelm, that Bismarck must be appointed in the foreign minister position. Wilhelm may well have rolled his eyes at the mention of this Prussian official which he simply couldn't get rid of, but Rune also enjoyed a good relationship with Wilhelm, and the two men agreed passionately over the need for reform, so that Rune's mention of Bismarck might have caused Wilhelm to look at Bismarck differently rather than to just beg his friend to stop mentioning that blasted Junker's name. But why had Rune been so determined to get Bismarck a job? Was it simply because Bismarck was the guy he remembered from his childhood, that 19-year-old who visited him while he was doing some topographical work for the Prussian government? Actually, Rune saw something in Bismarck, something which Leopold von Gerlach and Ludwig von Gerlach had seen, which Frederick William had, despite himself, also seen, and which also became something of a key to Bismarck's success. There was just, for lack of a better term, a quality about Bismarck that seemed to stand out, if one could overcome their distaste for his coarseness, his pride, and his dogmatism, then underneath these layers, especially when he turned on the charm and wanted you to like him, it was plain that the raw talent was present within Bismarck in spades. Rune didn't merely want his friend beside him, he also wanted to harness Bismarck's raw talent 
for his own gain. Again, though, we might ask, what could Rune hope to gain by seeing Bismarck appointed? It wasn't like he needed more friends, he already had the regent as his beck and call after all, which means he basically had the Prussian head of state as his major point of contact. In fact, Rune wanted to use Bismarck because, as we have established, the reform bill which he dreamt of was hotly opposed in the Landtag, and without a strong figure to somehow force the bill through, there was no way for it to pass, and the Crown and Parliament would be at loggerheads. This is something we have to get to grips with if we're to understand Bismarck's ascension to power. Even when he grabbed the position of Minister-President in autumn 1862, this wasn't achieved the way Bismarck wanted. He wasn't welcomed in because he had persuaded all around him of the need to combat the Austrians, or because his relationship with Wilhelm had dramatically improved. Instead, Bismarck was picked out of his social exile in St. Petersburg, because in the mind of Rune, and of Wilhelm, who had been converted to believe it, Bismarck was the only man capable of getting this reform bill to pass. Through such unremarkable circumstances was history to be made. But not yet. The drama was far from over. While Rune climbed the governmental ladder in the last few months of 1859, Bismarck recovered from another flare-up of his condition. This time it had gotten more serious than ever as a blood clot from his leg wound travelled through his circulation and according to Bismarck's understanding of the situation brought about an inflammation of the lungs. The doctors expected it to be fatal but it was cured after a month of grievous sickness. Indeed Bismarck spent much of the latter few months of 1859 relaxing in the estates of his friends. These friends were supposed to calm him down and prevent him from engaging in any work. Good luck to them. Bismarck couldn't sit still, and as 1859 became 1860, he was so affected by rumours which had started to swirl around that he was being considered for the position of foreign minister that he hardly knew what to do with himself. We might ask whether these rumours had any real weight to them. Rune had only just been appointed, but how much influence could one friend on the inside realistically have? And how disliked was Alexander von Schleinitz that only shortly after being appointed, they were already talking about replacing him? That is, if they even were talking about replacing him, because it's hard to tell from looking back at the records whether or not Bismarck was ever actually considered at this stage at all. It could simply have been the case that his name came up in a meeting, but for Bismarck this was enough, because it meant that he was still being considered among those who were also in the halls of power. Bismarck desperately wanted access to these halls of power, but he could get no answer from the government, which made him anxious and nervous and reluctant to act in any forceful way. But what did his contemporaries actually think of him? We've talked a lot about how he managed to balance some important friends, such as the Gerlach brothers or von Roon, for instance, and that he enjoyed the friendship of Jonathan Lothrop Motley, that Bostonian author and historian who would again pop up in the Bismarck story in a few years' time. But what about contemporaries who weren't necessarily his friends and just simply had to deal with him on a day-to-day basis? Well, one Prussian diplomat in Stuttgart recorded his own impressions in late January 1860, which shows how strongly some people felt about this tireless Junker. Since yesterday, the diplomat in Stuttgart began, the rumour has spread that Herr von Bismarck is to become foreign minister in place of Herr von Schleinitz, who will in return replace Ambassador Berenstorff in London. The name Bismarck has a repellent sound. 
not only to the ears of all German governments, so that the name alone is not only enough to effect a split between Prussia and its previous allies, but the name is at the same time, be it right or wrong, a cause of profound hatred in the depths of the soul of every friend of Prussia. Despite his contacts and his friendship with some individuals, Bismarck was not now and never would be a popular man. And the reason for this, I feel, was his coarseness and impatience with subordinates, who he rarely seems to have treated particularly well, and from whom he demanded total obedience and loyalty, traits which made him seem more like a czar of the Prussian ministry than its figurehead, who would serve at the instruction of the king and was supposed to follow the king's policy, not necessarily invent his own and then bully the king into following it. One figure who provides great insight into Bismarck's character was Bismarck's subordinate in St. Petersburg, a man by the name of Kurd von Schloser, who Edward Crankshaw described as an extremely intelligent second secretary at the Petersburg embassy, a man of considerable culture and strength of character, if a little self-important and touchy, and inclined to stand on his dignity. Schloser pulled no punches when it came to describing the man who arrived in spring 1859 to take charge of the Prussian embassy. It's easy to imagine Bismarck running the St. Petersburg embassy all by himself, but of course Bismarck toiled away while being served by an army of Prussian civil servants and petty officials, many of whom aimed at one day having a position like Bismarck's and climbing the ladder to the top. Schloser describes the moment of Bismarck's arrival in April 1859, which takes our story back a bit, but I can assure you, such an anecdote is well worth it. My new chief, wrote Schloser, is a man with no consideration for others, a man of power who dreams of dramatic gestures, who is anxious to shine, who knows everything without having seen it, and affects omniscience, although there is much that he does not know. At Frankfurt he was used to very young attaches who stood to attention and trembled when he approached. Schloser even described how Bismarck was unhappy with the state of the St. Petersburg Embassy, so he locked himself away in a St. Petersburg hotel, which was some distance away from the embassy itself. While there, it meant that Schloser and his colleagues had to bring their reports to him on a regular basis. Bismarck wasn't about to come all the way to them now, was he? Schloser had occasion to complain about the perpetual harassment by an unscrupulous neurotic chief who thinks all other men are weaklings, who veils his own plans in darkness, or suddenly tries to astound his audience, who trusts nobody in the world. None of this is very pleasant. Interestingly, the relationship between Bismarck and Schloser was to represent one of the few occasions when Bismarck's enemy developed into Bismarck's... I think the word friend is probably too strong in this situation, but you could certainly use the word acquaintance. When Bismarck returned to St. Petersburg in June 1860, unable to secure the promotion he had sought, he seems to have confessed his flaws to a stunned Kurd von Schloser, and to have admitted that his treatment of Schloser all along had been wrong. Perhaps having got a taste of how terrible it was to be ill-treated by one's betters, Bismarck had had an epiphany about how others might feel when he treated them the same way. Certainly the months of waiting in Berlin during the spring of 1860 had played no small role in fraying his nerves, but they could also be surprisingly productive times. Let's remind ourselves why he was waiting in Berlin in the first place. On the front of it, he could claim he was recovering from his illness, but in reality, he expected confirmation, or at least to be let down gently, 
over the question of a ministerial post, which of course he wanted to be the foreign ministry. Instead of letting him know, though, Wilhelm and his underlings couldn't decide, and this indecision drove Bismarck mad. Understandably enough, he couldn't accept that these people were so unable to make a firm decision and stick with it. Bismarck did meet with these people several times as well, and in these conversations, Bismarck says that his convictions were never left in any doubt. His record of these conversations represents nothing less than a manifesto, a summary of where his views stood by the winter and spring of 1860. In particular, Bismarck refers to Olmutz, which, if you'll remember, was a crisis in 1849 which saw Prussia threatened by Russia and Austria, and which saw the Prussians forced to back down, feeling utterly humiliated. What follows here is a long extract, but it's worthwhile because it's from Bismarck's mind and Bismarck's pen itself, and it grounds our coverage after so many long tangents. Bismarck is here describing a meeting that he had with Wilhelm. He doesn't provide the exact date for it, but the way he refers to it, it sounds like it could literally have been any meeting that the two men had had over the last several months. In any case, it gives us some good context as to what was going on in Prussia at the time. Bismarck wrote, The regent introduced the discussion by calling upon me to sketch out the programme which I should approve. I expounded it plainly on the lines which I afterwards followed as minister, pointing out that the weakest side of our policy was the feeble attitude towards Austria, which had prevailed since Olmutz, and especially of late years during the Italian crisis. If we would accomplish our German task in agreement with Austria, so much the better. But this would not be possible until the conviction had gained ground in Vienna that in the opposite case we should shrink from neither rupture nor war. The rapprochement with Russia, which was so desirable for the accomplishment of our policy, could be more easily preserved, by acting against Austria than with her. But even in the latter case, it did not seem to be impossible, in the light of the experience I had gained at St. Petersburg of the Russian court and the influences prevailing there. The Crimean War and the Polish complications left us with a balance in hand which, if skillfully used, would enable us to come to an understanding with Austria without breaking with Russia. I was only afraid that the understanding with Austria might come to grief on account of the exaggerated idea prevalent there of the greatness of their own power and the smallness of the Prussians. Until, at any rate, Austria was thoroughly convinced that we were seriously prepared, if necessary, even for rupture and war. Our policy at Vienna during the last ten years had removed all belief in any such possibility. They had grown to regard the basis of all moots as permanent, and they had either failed to notice or had forgotten that the convention of Olmutz had its chief justification in the temporary disadvantage of our position which were caused by the dispersal of our cadres, and by the fact that at the time of that convention the whole weight of Russian power had fallen into the scale of Austria, which since the Crimean War was no longer the case. But Austria was just as exacting in her policy towards us in 1856 as at the time when the Emperor Nicholas helped her against us. I maintained that our submission to the Austrian illusion recalled the experiment of fixing a hen to the spot by drawing a chalk line in front of it. Austrian confidence, a skilful use of the press, and a plentiful supply of secret service money enabled Count Buell to keep up the Austrian phantasmagoria and to ignore the strong position in which Prussia would be placed as soon as she was ready to break through the witchcraft of the chalk line. The regent knew perfectly well what I meant by the reference to Austrian secret funds. Indeed, Bismarck's reference to secret Austrian money had been based on fact. 
He had, after all, been approached by the mysterious Levenstein in 1859, who had promised to take care of all of his affairs financially if Bismarck would only invest in a certain economic scheme, accept a pension, and renounce his policy towards Austria, that last one being particularly important. Bismarck records how this manifesto was greeted. It went over like a lead balloon. And what was worse, sitting Foreign Minister Alexander von Schleinitz immediately stood up to give his own account of the situation, which Bismarck was decent enough to record in his memoirs. He, Schleinitz, described the anxieties and dangers which threatened us from the West, from Paris, and at home, if our relations with Austria, in spite of all justifiable grounds for sensitiveness, failed to be maintained. The dangers of a combination between Russia and France, which even at that time was openly discussed, were set forth, and the possibility of an alliance between Prussia and Russia was said to be condemned by public opinion. It was characteristic of the regent that, as soon as Schleinitz had spoken the last word of a fluent and evidently carefully prepared speech, he had once declared in a lucid statement that in accordance with the traditions of his ancestors, he decided in favour of the minister von Schleinitz. This brought the discussion to a speedy conclusion. Bismarck here had been outmanoeuvred. His proclamations and heartfelt ideology had been drawn out, and Schleinitz, who himself was drawing on Wilhelm's known sympathies, was then able to make his own speech. The encounter was so stinging for Bismarck that he convinced himself it had been a setup all along, perhaps to show him how unlikely it was for him to hold office so long as he retained his views. Augusta, Wilhelm's wife, Bismarck decided in effect, that was who was to blame. It never seems to have occurred to him that his audience was scared, terrified even, of making the wrong move. That illusion of Austrian power which Bismarck referred to in his spiel was no illusion to the regent or his government. It was a fact of the European balance which had existed in some form or another since the 17th century. How is it possible to imagine now that Bismarck would somehow lead Prussia against this legacy? How was it possible that Bismarck could so transform what was the status quo? It seemed that only Bismarck knew what he was capable of, but at this stage at least, despite his efforts to persuade them otherwise, his audience was not convinced. Though unconvinced, they did refuse to give Bismarck a straight answer, and they strung him along until, meeting one time with Schleinitz by chance, Bismarck demanded an answer, only to be begged by Schleinitz to wait and be calm for a few more days. At the very least, Bismarck was able to meet regularly with his friends in Berlin, while away from his ambassadorial duties, and there was no friend that he met with more regularly during this period than Albrecht von Roon the standout officer who had just been promoted to Minister for War. Bismarck had contacts as well, with some leading lights in the Conservative parties, and since Roon required parliamentary support to get the reform bill passed, Bismarck and Roon were in a position to help each other. Though he had been a recent appointment, Roon was already suffering from that universal problem of all who tried to stay on the middle of the fence. He was too reactionary for the moderates, and he was too moderate for the reactionaries. Thus he was left with few friends or allies to call upon. With his back against the wall, Rune came to depend more and more upon Bismarck. Their friendship furthered, and Rune no doubt assured Bismarck that he would speak favourably of him to the king. Bismarck may have been more encouraged to stay in Berlin longer, and see whether the scales would tip in his favour after all. But he couldn't wait forever. By June 1860, 
Bismarck had been away from his ambassadorial duties at St. Petersburg, his actual job, don't forget, for just short of a year, and he simply needed to return if he was to have any hope of holding that position down. Those hesitant nannies in the palace could find him if they wanted him, but for now, Bismarck had to go back to work. He wrote to a former subordinate at Frankfurt that the exit plan from Berlin suited him, and after he had settled himself down in St. Petersburg after making the trek all the way back there, though it was much better now without the snow, Bismarck wrote, I have settled here in St. Petersburg at considerable cost for many years to come and could not wish for a more agreeable chief than Schleinitz. I really have got close to him and I'm rather fond of him. I wish sincerely that his desire to change places with me never happens. I would not last six months as a minister. This was quite a claim for Bismarck to make. It may also seem odd that Schleinitz, a man who had opposed Bismarck for the last several months, was someone who Bismarck was now apparently quite fond of. Was Bismarck just telling another porky? At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter all that much how Bismarck felt about Schleinitz, because just as would have been the case with Rune if Rune had gotten in his way, Bismarck was able to see the end goal without necessarily seeing the friendship or the person that he was about to push to the side. At the same time, though, it is quite unlikely that Bismarck was all that fond of Schleinitz. He makes very clear in his memoirs, with several sniping comments, that he saw Schleinitz as nothing more than Augusta's creature. He compares him to a rat at one point, and he also accuses Schleinitz on several occasions of inexcusable stupidity. Bismarck says that he wouldn't last six months as a minister, and in that, he was right. He didn't last six months. He lasted 28 years. And that wasn't even in the post of foreign minister, but minister-president. Bismarck apparently wasn't aiming high enough at this stage, but soon enough, the post of minister-president and all that it entailed loomed into view. Back in St. Petersburg, though, Bismarck was again subject to the pen of his subordinate, Kurd von Schloser who noted in October 1860, Bismarck is the devil himself, but where is he going? I dine with Bismarck every day and there is no more trouble between us. He is the holy political man. His whole being is a ferment of impulses and desires to be expressed, manipulated, shaped. He is determined to command the political arena, to master the chaos in Berlin, but he does not yet know how. And again, Schloser writes in November 1860, My Pasha is now in a state of painful agitation. His Berlin visit and the sight of the confusion and indecision there have fired his blood. It seems that he thinks his hour has nearly come. There will be a violent conflict in the chamber. Schleinitz will lose his temper and offer his resignation, and then the Pasha will take over. The big question is, will he suit Prussia? Will Prussia suit him? What are we to make of these extracts? Schloser might have believed it, but did Bismarck really believe once again, only a few months after being terribly disappointed, that his time had now come to succeed the foreign minister? Instead, it seems more likely that after he had left, the question unanswered over whether he would succeed Schleinitz or not, Bismarck simply tortured himself with the possibilities and he inflicted his suffering on his dutiful employees, some of whom, like Schloser, who now knew him better, were clued in enough to note that something was off in Bismarck, which hadn't been off before. In fact, the experience of the first half of 1860 had thoroughly rattled Bismarck, to a degree never seen before or since. 
His sheer failure to get noticed or accepted was a signal failure that he felt really deep down, and perhaps he was now coming to terms with the extent of his isolation, having always assumed, perhaps naively, that his connections and reputation would land him a prestigious job. Perhaps Bismarck was seeing his life flash before his eyes, and searching desperately for a way into Wilhelm's confidence and hopefully his cabinet. Furthermore, Bismarck was unsure about what the future held, and he certainly couldn't face returning to Berlin to endure six months of uncertain torture again. No, Bismarck likely tried to reassure himself, I will stay in St. Petersburg and do my job to the utmost, and something soon will come up. It will have to come up. Bismarck's sense of failure at this point in his life is palpable, and he had resigned himself, apparently, to staying in St. Petersburg for the foreseeable future. A fact which is captured by another eyewitness, this one infamous in his own right. Friedrich von Holstein, who would serve as Germany's foremost foreign policy expert between about 1890 to 1906, was an unpaid intern cutting his teeth in the St. Petersburg Embassy by 1861, and he recorded his impression of Bismarck when he saw him for the first time in January of 1861. Writing, When I presented myself to Bismarck, he held out his hand and said, You are welcome. As he stood there, tall, erect, unsmiling, I saw him as he was later to appear to his family and to the rest of the world, a man who allows no one to know him intimately. At that time, Bismarck was 45, slightly bald with fair hair turning grey, not noticeably corpulent, sallow complexion, never gay, even when telling amusing anecdotes, a thing he did only occasionally and then in particularly congenial company. I have never known anyone so joyless as Bismarck. This seems like a pretty damning account of Bismarck, after several portraits of his character which weren't exactly flattering to begin with. But I'm just doing my best to tell you exactly what his contemporaries thought of him. But I should caution you here, just as Steinberg cautions us in his biography of Bismarck, not to take Holstein's recollections too seriously. Holstein, Steinberg reminds us, experienced some joyless years of his own, particularly once Bismarck was dismissed, so this may have been Holstein projecting onto old memories. But the coldness with which Bismarck greeted the new underling, Holstein, has been reported on elsewhere in other encounters. While he could be warmer than summer in his greeting and personality, Bismarck could also be vengeful, ruthless, and even paranoid in his pursuit of a vendetta, such as the one against Augusta, which he seemed to see everywhere. His personality was also a contradiction, as was his sense of contentment. When driven to act in politics, he moved with a tremendous energy which no one seemed able to match. He could work up to 20 hours a day and he could write endless letters, but in his private letters he complains of a pathological longing for the countryside, for the quiet and desolation of his estates, and for everyone to basically leave him alone. On the inverse though, when he had this quiet solitude that he claims he so badly wanted, Bismarck found himself restless. He couldn't sit still, he couldn't ignore the fountains of energy which threatened to burst out of him, and he couldn't contend himself by reading, walking, shooting, or any other hobby which Prussian Junkers did to relax. When he was relaxed, he became antsy, and when he worked with enough intensity to use up this energy, he longed to relax. 
This could be a symptom of that energy we've talked of before, an energy which drove him to engage in stressful and tiresome pursuits and to hurl himself into great challenges even while supposedly at a state of peace. Like that occasion where he rode for hours into the night while on vacation in Sweden just because he wanted the challenge of a ride in rough terrain. What are we supposed to make of a person like Bismarck who puts himself through all of these challenges and whose personality never really lends itself to an easy definition? Bismarck is certainly not the kind of person who fit into a neat little box. Just as he could contradict himself with his desires, so too did his personality often fail to reflect what others thought of him. While contemporaries might have believed deep down that Bismarck didn't spare a kind thought for anyone unless it was to his political gain, we also can find Bismarck writing incredibly emotional and warm letters to his sister, describing in vivid, beautiful detail all that he had done that day. Perhaps he was brightening things up for his sister, who he never wished to see his darker sides, but at the same time, someone who's capable of this genuine warmth, affection and care which Bismarck expressed for his family can't have been devoid of these emotions when interacting with non-relatives. I suppose I am biased in a certain extent, because, and this is going to sound a little bit ridiculous, I see a bit of myself in Bismarck, at least in so far as, no, settle down, okay, calm down, at least in so far as the whole energy thing and the whole being unable to sit still. I'm constantly being told, mostly by my dear wife who has to put up with an awful lot, that I need to learn how to relax. And what she means by that, and what Bismarck's contemporaries probably meant, if they ever dared to say that to him, was that my brain has a great difficulty in switching off. For me, the all-consuming thing is podcasting, history, thinking of what I'm going to do next, or make next, or create next, how it's going to be received, etc, etc, and planning, or dreaming, or imagining, even when I'm not necessarily working really hard. It's great because it means I'm in charge of what happens, but it's also bad because it means that I rarely, if ever, switch off. And when I do switch off, it has to be something that I really, really force myself to do, and then I can find it kind of difficult to switch back on afterwards. And the few times that I've tried to go on one of those holidays where you literally do nothing and just lounge by a beach all the time because people have told me that that's what I need, I always find I get too bored after the second day of doing nothing, and I need something, literally, to do. And Bismarck was very similar in this respect. He wasn't the kind of person who could go away on holiday, or who could go to his estate, or even who could go to his residence in Berlin, and just sit there and relax. That would have been anathema to his character and to his every being, because he was unable to stop, just like I was unable to switch off. For me it was podcasting, but for Bismarck it was politics. I like to think about all the things I can make or do or create or what have you, but Bismarck liked to think of where he could bring himself, what he could achieve, what he could do, and probably, once he got to that position, what he would change. This is a roundabout way of saying that Bismarck's character deserves to be kept in mind. This energy was the quality which people saw in him. This was the thing that stood out. It was the thing that stopped him from being passed over, even though there was far more experienced people in line who could have taken the job instead of him. Bismarck's energy translated itself into a kind of dynamism, which made it seem like he was in control, and made it seem like he was capable of all things, even if he didn't necessarily have all the answers. For Bismarck, idleness was his enemy. It was the ultimate foe which he could never truly conquer, because he could never conquer himself. 
nor did he show any real desire to conquer this massive swell of energy which occasionally drove him to insanity. Perhaps if he had talked with some of his calmer friends or accepted that sometimes one needs to change in order to improve their lot in life, we could have been talking about a very different Bismarck. But Bismarck wasn't the kind of person to look inward like this. He was instead the kind of person to make use of this energy for his own gain. And oh boy, did he do just that. Bismarck had to be doing something at all times. And his favourite way to invest his energies, his ambition and his intelligence was to focus on a given mission. This mission granted Bismarck's life meaning. And by 1860, his mission had never been more clear. He had to somehow, some way, gain power. And the passage of time, fortunately for Bismarck, seemed to bring with it circumstances that were ideally suited to catapult a new school of statesmen to the top. Bismarck was persuaded to agitate for a radical amount of change because by January 1861, Wilhelm could no longer be called the regent. He had instead become king in his own right after his incapacitated brother, Frederick William, died. Before Wilhelm had even become the official king, his courtiers and liberal politicians alike argued over what should be done. Should Wilhelm, as some suggested, take an oath on the constitution of 1848? Certainly not, said Wilhelm. He would have the traditional ceremony where the nobility of Prussia would pay homage to him. At this point, Bismarck was contacted by Rune directly, who insisted that in this atmosphere of opposition to the king by the liberals, Wilhelm would want someone he could depend on to fight for his rights, and who better in this task than Bismarck? Rune even took the time to use a Latin phrase in his letter, and I'm not going to read it out because I'll murder the pronunciation, but it meant danger in delay. He used this to try and urge Bismarck to come to Berlin, and he would reuse it in similar circumstances the following year. In summer 1861, though, Mindful of the farce that he had endured in the first half of 1860 and what it had done to him, Bismarck was in no rush to leave St. Petersburg once more and to arrive at Rune's command. And it is here, after having been through the ringer, that Bismarck shows us how much he had learned. Rather than jump at the first whiff of promotion, Bismarck now looked at the circumstances in the cold light of day and declared to Rune that considering the fact that Prussian policy was liberal at home and conservative abroad, he wouldn't fit in. No, no, this current state of affairs was quite unsuitable for him, because Bismarck had a plan of his own. He wanted to crush liberalism at home, whatever it took, and he wanted to capture the imagination of the Prussian people by triumphing against foreign enemies. Read Austria. Only once the king agreed to follow his line of thinking would Bismarck then agree to serve. This was a striking change from the Bismarck of the year before, who had hung around in the hope of a promotion in an uncertain ministry and who would have been pretty much happy to take any post, regardless of whether the king agreed with his vision for foreign policy or not. Time, perhaps, had shown Bismarck that things would come to the man who waited, and so long as he wasn't spinning his wheels in Berlin idleness, he was content to wait if he had to. After all, he did have a job to do. St. Petersburg had plenty to keep him busy, and he knew that his reputation as the hammer of the liberals and the no-nonsense instrument of the king who could get things done would stand him in good stead if Wilhelm did become desperate enough. It's hard for us to account for this change in Bismarck's character, but it seems to have sunk in over 1860-61, to 61, 
and it probably became clearer to him following the experience in Berlin, which he swore never to endure again. This fear of being put on the long finger might well have overwhelmed every other incentive. It may have made him more cautious, but at the same time more willing to risk royal disfavour if he didn't comply. Due to the reputation of his character alone, Bismarck found that he now had leverage to use against Wilhelm's court, perhaps because he now feared something more than his own irrelevance. That being, to be in a black hole of mystery while he was abused and ignored by his superior, all the while being powerless to do anything. He was able to channel this fear into a sensible approach to politics. It would be fair to say, whatever the explanation for Bismarck's growth in character, that he had grown up. He had learned the value of patience and calculation after a career of moving at the first sign of opportunity or danger or potential advancement. He learned these lessons just in the nick of time, it seems, to flummox his contemporaries with his calm exterior at a moment like this, and he built up a reputation for genius which, ironically, became so exaggerated that Bismarck's legend became akin to that legend of Napoleon III in the 1850s, which Bismarck had himself then criticised. We'll recall that Bismarck opposed the idea that anything that happened was down to Napoleon's action. Even if Napoleon hadn't acted, this lack of action was still considered deliberate and as evidence of Napoleon III's intelligence and foresight. In a similar vein from this point onwards, contemporaries, historians and even yours truly would be taken in by the apparent genius of Bismarck's actions, only to discover that Bismarck hadn't acted at all, or that he had acted in an opposite direction, and luck had nonetheless provided a victory. The Bismarck legend either way was starting to grow, but it would take some time before our man had a chance to show it off and to show his genuine talent for reading people and reading situations on the world stage. For now, the situation he was reading was Wilhelm's muddled cabinet, and he didn't like what he saw, so he'd be staying away for now, at least until Wilhelm gave him what he wanted. But Bismarck did travel to meet Rune and see what all the fuss was about. Uniquely in Bismarck's life, the effort was complicated by the difficulties in travel, and the two men managed to somehow miss each other several times, and were unable to tie down a place to meet before the other person had moved on. 150 years on from events like these, the idea that two senior officials in a country like Prussia could not be able to tie down a place to meet and just miss each other by days seems ludicrous, but it spoke to the limits of communication and correspondence at the time. Had either man had a mobile phone, matters of course would have transpired very differently. We imagine Bismarck's frustrations at the whole experience, even after all he had learned, sometimes something as simple as setting up a meeting with his friend Rune just would not happen. Another trait of Bismarck's character is that he was utterly unapologetic about who he was. He didn't try to change for anyone. He never tried to look inside himself and think, maybe I should be better at this or that, or maybe I should have more patience or consideration, etc, etc. Oh no, Bismarck was not about to change. He wasn't even about to change for his friends. Although he could be generous and warm when he was with them, he rarely tried to be someone he was not. To explain what I mean by this, I'll have to just take us back a little bit, just to winter of 1859, when Bismarck was trying to get better after the whole leg debacle set him down a few pegs. Bismarck's friend, Alexander von Bielow Hohendorf, had urged him to put aside his rage, to swallow his pride, to relax, 
and to give up to God his intense volcanic feelings which poisoned his heart and mind, and also, perhaps, to stop twitching so nervously and just relax already, Bismarck, for crying out loud. But this was like telling Bismarck to cease breathing, because these feelings, this energy, it kept him going even if it ruined his nerves. Hohendorf had probably hoped that with dutiful prayer and a strong belief, God could heal the sickness of envy, ambition and anger which boiled in his friend. Imagine Hohendorf's surprise then, when nearly two years after staying in his estate and daily giving him this earnest advice, Bismarck sent Hohendorf the following letter in September 1861. This was another of Bismarck's manifesto letters. It was one that pulled no punches and it cynically explained how the world works, in Bismarck's mind at least. It holds something revealing, fascinating and terrifying all at once and it was almost certainly the exact opposite of what Hohendorf wanted to hear. Nonetheless, Bismarck pressed on, writing... The system of solidarity of the conservative interests of all countries is a dangerous fiction. We arrive at a point where we make the whole unhistorical, godless and lawless sovereignty swindle of the German princes into the darling of the Prussian Conservative Party. Our government is in fact liberal domestically and legitimist in foreign policy. We protect foreign monarchical rights with greater tenacity than our own and wax lyrical about little sovereignties created by Napoleon and sanctioned by Metternich to the point of utter blindness to all the dangers to which Prussia and Germany's independence is exposed, as long as the madness of the present federal constitution survives, which is, after all, nothing but a greenhouse and storage centre for dangerous and revolutionary separatist movements. Besides, I cannot see a reason why we coyly shrink from the idea of a popular assembly, whether at the federal level or in the Zoll Parliament, an institution which operates in every German state and which we conservatives in Prussia cannot do without, can hardly be called a revolutionary innovation. A lot of Bismarck's manifesto letters, as I call them, read like this. Several statements succeeding each other, sometimes with sentences that didn't exactly have the greatest punctuation marks and could read a bit confusingly, but which always put across a strong, striking message. The message here was that Bismarck was sick and tired of respecting the sovereignty of those small German states, that he hated the German Confederation, that he wanted to change the Constitution of 1848, that he wanted a really, genuinely free federal assembly, that he wanted greater control for Prussia over all of these things, because he wanted Prussia to rule, regardless of the consequences. This was, in many respects, a repetition of the principles of Realpolitik, what Bismarck was speaking about here was the Prussian interest above all, and according to Bismarck, the interests of Prussia should override all other interests that Prussian statesmen might have. It was all very well and good to make a song and dance about the rights of those independent Germans, but when those little German states tended to actively move against you, or weren't particularly all that interested in how well Prussia was doing, it stood to reason that helping these little German states along wasn't going to get Berlin anywhere. No, Bismarck said, it was high time Prussia pushed these German states aside, or at the very least, stop going to bat for them and start thinking about the Prussian interest first. As if further broadening his character, Bismarck had invested in some alternative options which might bring him to power at some point in the future, should others fail him. One scheme that he hatched with a cabal of liberal German nationalists 
who imagined that Prussia was the natural leader of a future German Union, felt that Bismarck might be a useful figure to move this scheme forward. It wasn't yet established how the scheme of national unity under Prussia would be achieved, but Bismarck signalled that, in contrast to his earlier days, he was now in favour of German national unity. In the latter half of 1859, having recovered mostly from the worst parts of his leg injury, Bismarck talked with Victor von Unruh. Von Unruh was a liberal nationalist politician, and it was then that Bismarck made his famous remark that the only friend for Prussia was the German people. Victor von Unruh was connected with additional nationalists, including the ringleaders of National Union, an organisation which had recently been established and which aimed at the unification of Germany under Prussia. Whether Bismarck really believed in the National Union cause is another question altogether, but he certainly recognised the usefulness of having these nationalists work in his name. The leader of this National Union was the Hanoverian politician Rudolf von Benningsen, and on the 15th of September 1859, in the city of Frankfurt, the National Union, or National Verein to go with the Zollverein or Customs Union, held its first meeting, wherein the objectives of the Revolutionary Assembly of 1849 were invoked. A controversial act, since those objectives had been beaten back by Austrian and Russian threats. Just before it met, Victor von Unruh, in the height of optimism, wrote to Bismarck excitedly to explain that the Association of National Union would look to Prussia to champion the cause of German unity in the face of Austrian opposition. Unruh added, we, and this includes Herr von Benningsen, would be sincerely gratified if you should be appointed Minister for Foreign Affairs. It would be stating the obvious to say that Bismarck himself would be pretty gratified to become Minister for Foreign Affairs as well. But as Bismarck was coming to learn, though he didn't quite know it in the latter half of 1859, and these lessons would only be learned really the following few years, fruit ripened very slowly in King Wilhelm's mind. Notwithstanding his cynical outlook and his belief that all German states should obey rather than necessarily unite with the Prussians, Bismarck did maintain his correspondence with Unruh, with Benningsen and with all of those nationalist German associates. Contacts like these, if nothing else, explain why Bismarck was unable to sit still. To maintain these relationships, he had to write a ferocious number of letters, which would contain terms, offers, conditions and scenarios, which Bismarck could only ever answer for himself. Though aided consistently by a large staff, there were countless occasions when Bismarck had to fulfil all correspondence himself, including when the initially promising correspondence with the leaders of the National Union became frustrating when damaging rumours began to swirl around Bismarck's character. The most egregious and ridiculous of these rumours were that Bismarck had promised Napoleon III the Rhineland in order to gain France as an ally against Austria. At this point in late 1859, in a rare mood of desperation, Bismarck even wrote to Gorchakov, urging him to deny the rumours that he had ever offered Gorchakov territory as part of a treaty. Gorchakov must have seen this letter and then rubbed his hands together with glee. He deeply enjoyed any occasion when Bismarck visibly squirmed, because such occasions were so rare. Bismarck's enemies must also have been reassured. Here at last was a scandal all of Bismarck's making, which would now ruin him. 
The scandal was of his own making, they would claim, because Bismarck had betrayed the truly Prussian policy of opposing the enemy of traditional Prussian culture and independence, Napoleonic France. Was it to be wondered at, having taken this course, that whispers were now to be heard of his unfitness for office in any position, considering his willingness to treat with such a fundamentally anti-Prussian figure as Napoleon III supposedly was? It was against this method of thinking that Bismarck, virtually from the beginning, had always fought against, making use of the argument that to treat Napoleon permanently as the enemy only served to reduce Prussian options, and it did no favours for the Austrian friendship because Vienna demanded too much of Prussia either way. All of these rumours, which stayed with Bismarck throughout 1859, 60 and a bit of 61, were of course false but they did trouble Unruh and Bennigsen enough to make them second-guess the man that they had roped into helping their cause, that cause being national unity. In fact, Bismarck hoped they would help him, and that he might ride the tide of German national unity all the way to the Foreign Office. It was a tactic he would replicate again in 1870, but in that case, he didn't ride German national unity to the Foreign Office. Instead, he rode it all the way the Hall of Mirrors in Versailles, where the German Empire was proclaimed. That the changing of the guard from King Frederick William to Wilhelm in January 1861 would change nothing at all should have been obvious to Bismarck all along. After all, Wilhelm had been filling in for his elder brother since late 1857, and in that time he begun to put his own stamp on Prussian government, seen most explicitly in Bismarck's mind in the deplorable indecisiveness with which the king seemed to greet every situation. But as Bismarck tried to convince himself that everything was fine and he was okay, even travelling to the king's coronation in October 1861 and remarking only to Johanna about how cold and draughty the rooms were, that inner clock which ticked within his brain and which threatened to unravel his mental and physical health yet again began to tick we might wonder why Bismarck couldn't just be happy with his St. Petersburg posting, which all things considered, genuinely did suit him very well. The problem was that Bismarck was almost too perceptive for his own good. He knew very well that deep down, King Wilhelm was unhappy with his position and felt he was giving away too much to the liberals in Prussia. One example of these liberals being given far too much in Prussia was that Wilhelm had had to give up on his original plan to have all of the nobles of Prussia pay homage to him. Instead, just as those liberals had wanted originally, Wilhelm would have to swear on the constitution to uphold his duties as king. There would be no traditional Prussian ceremony of homage as the king wanted. Instead, this was a ceremony that was sure to embolden the liberals and reduce the moral power of the king. Wilhelm naively hoped that by giving away on the coronation, the Liberals might be more likely to give way on the expensive military bill, which, by the way, was still languishing in the Landtag. Bismarck can't have been ignorant of these difficulties. After all, he had a direct line with Albrecht von Roon, the Minister for War, and with Edwin von Manteuffel, the former Minister-President. Although Manteuffel was no longer in a position to affect policy, Manteuffel still had the respectful ear of the king, though of course he wasn't meeting him for coffee and cake every morning like he had done with his elder brother. My point is that, informed of these difficulties which the king was enduring, and safe in the knowledge that Prussia lacked any formidable minister at this moment who might do the impossible, 
Bismarck must have imagined that he was the only one capable of fulfilling Wilhelm's dream, his vision for what Prussia should look like. The problems of Wilhelm's disagreement with how he and Bismarck viewed the world, or more particularly, the position of Prussia and Austria within that world, could be overcome once Bismarck started bringing Wilhelm returns and the king got what he wanted. Satisfied in his own sphere of military affairs, Wilhelm might be more likely to see things Bismarck's way thereafter. This, at least, is my theory for why Bismarck seems to have been endlessly on edge throughout much of 1860-62. He seems to have known deep down that Wilhelm wished to appoint him, if only to harness his coarse, standoffish, but also firm and loyal style. But the king struggled with the decision of appointing a man so divisive and extreme. Bismarck was anxious because his instincts told him that his hour was near. After all, King Wilhelm was running out of options. One only had to look at the results of the Prussian elections to see that. We're not going to go into how these elections were calculated, but don't go around thinking that Prussia had some kind of functioning democracy at this stage. Only the elites were allowed to vote, but it might surprise you to learn that these elites were pretty liberally minded in how they chose their deputies. At least, that's how the results seemed to show things. In December 1861, for instance, those voters chose liberalism en masse, further empowering the king's political opponents. After this election, 69% of the Landtag's 352 seats were returned to liberal opposition candidates, a fact which, in the minds of some, drove the nail into the coffin of Rune's reforms, while in the minds of others, this result meant nothing less than an inevitable violent clash, perhaps even a revolution, for the conservative soul of the Prussian nation. As 1861 became 1862, and knowledge of Wilhelm's losses reached Bismarck, his internal clock ticked louder and moved him to behave even more like a man on the edge either of extreme power or utter mental collapse. Bismarck didn't know it at that point, and it seems almost crazy to say it now, but the Christmas of 1861, which he spent with his family, was destined to be the final Christmas out of the halls of power that Bismarck would have for a very long time indeed. By the following year, the Bismarck name would be firmly associated with the premiership, and the Bismarck family would be ensconced in their ministerial residence in Berlin, where they would remain for the next 28 years. We're going to leave Bismarck there for another week, guys, as he continues to anxiously stay informed of news in Berlin, and matters behind the scenes work in his favour and Rune, arguably his most important connection in the government, continued to rise. Rune never forgot the favourable impression which the 19-year-old Bismarck made on him, and now that 19-year-old was a very different man, but the potential which Rune had seen in him and then remembered later on hadn't faded, and had only become more impressive. A crisis was building within Prussia, which was destined to pit the king against a liberal majority of deputies, which would never see things his way, especially on the sensitive military reform bill. Could Rune get this man into the upper echelons of power, in spite of opposition from the royal family, from political rivals, from countless others, from newspapers, from virtually anyone with any kind of liberal sentiment in their being? Of course, we know the answer to be yes. But in the next episode, we'll analyse this drama and its conclusion as Bismarck seizes power with both of his hands. 
to plunge Prussia into war only two years afterwards. We're roughly halfway through our grand adventure here, history friends, but there is so much more goodness still to come. So if you've been enjoying the story so far, let me know and let others know. But otherwise, I'll be seeing you next week for the next instalment of this lovely series. Or if you're a patron, then just go and listen to it right now. You've earned it. Thanks for listening, history friends, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.